couple of weeks ago, I was at the uh, discount tire place getting um, a tire fixed, and I asked them how long it would take. I didn't call ahead to get a reservation, and they said, well, probably two or three hours. And I thought, oh, rats, I don't want to wait two or three hours. And I knew that Kathy was off shopping in Frisco, and we live in Aubrey, so that's quite a distance. So I thought, well, I'll get an Uber over to Starbucks and just read. I, I had a book with me, and so I thought I'll just sit over there and sip some coffee and read until my car's ready. So got the Uber, went over to Starbucks, and I just walked into Starbucks, and I was about to pay for my coffee and realized I didn't have my phone. I'd left it in the Uber. Right. Now, think about how dependent we are on our phones. I, I began to put two and two together and thought, well, I'll just call Kathy. And I thought, well, I'll just... And, and every solution that I came up with required my phone. So I, anyway, I asked the guy at the, at the... I tried to borrow somebody else's phone, and people don't like you to borrow their phones. <laughs> so I couldn't. So I walked next door to the what I thought was the nail salon place, but it was a hair place. And I asked the ladies there, what are you laughing at? I asked the ladies there if I could borrow their business phone to call my wife. And they said, sure. So I called Kathy, and of course, Kathy didn't recognize the number, so she didn't answer it. <laughs> so I left a message and said, you know, I'm stuck here, but don't worry if you call me, and I can't because my, Uber, my phone's in the Uber, and I'll get it worked out, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll, work, I'll work myself back over to Discount Tire. Well, Discount Tire is like two and a half miles away. I just happened to be wearing a black shirt, and it was 95 degrees. Well, I'm not going to hitchhike. I can't get somebody else to give me a ride. And so, thankfully, Starbucks was right by Walmart. I walked over to Walmart and bought a white shirt and a big straw hat. <laughs> and a thing of water. And started walking. Started walking and walking along the side of the highway. It was a great time. I made it about halfway there, and there was another filling station. Walked in, got another water. Was doing great. Made it all the way there, and anyway, it got worked out. But the point is, you know sometimes when you're walking along the side of the road, and you see that guy walking that looks like a nut, and you think, why didn't he get a job? <laughs> it could just be he left his phone in his Uber. You really don't know what's going on in somebody's life unless you ask them. The truth is, we, we get that kind of wisdom and that kind of discernment from only one place. If we're left to ourselves to try to figure out life and priorities and judging other people, we're going to come to a wrong conclusion, not only about other people, but about ourselves. Because we typically have a much better view of ourselves than, um, than is true. Or we could have a much worse view of ourselves than is true. Um, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25 and also Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now I know we're in Ezra because that's where we are in our study. We're taking a single 
message from each book of the Bible, but to kind of lay the groundwork for Ezra, let's look first at Leviticus 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. So just kind of have both of those available to you. After God's people settled in the promised land, God allowed his people to work the land. He provided for them in the promised land a land of milk and honey, as it's called, but a land that desperately depended on God because if it didn't rain, they had famine. There was no natural source of water that, uh, that blessed them, like in Egypt they had the Nile, and over in uh, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia they had the Tigris and Euphrates. But in Israel, Jordan River is pretty meager. Sea of Galilee is pretty good, but not everybody can live around the Sea of Galilee. Most people scattered throughout the land depended on rain. Well, let's look at Leviticus 25, verse, maybe I should turn there too. Leviticus 25, verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 1 to 4. The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Seems kind of random. And it seems that way only because it seems such an odd command. The command was basically this. When you get into the land, every seven years you're going to have a rotating schedule. For six years you work the land, but on that seventh year, the whole year, you don't work the land. You just eat its fruit. It's called a Sabbath year. Even the land got a Sabbath. Even the land got a whole year to just rest. We, today, farmers will rotate their crops with the same idea, but God had more than simply um, rotating crops or letting the land lie fallow and regain its nutrients. God had that in mind, of course, but he had much more than that in mind. He wanted to teach his people that the land wasn't theirs. Even though he'd given it to them, ultimately, the land was his. Look uh, down in verse 18, a few more verses down. Leviticus 25:18 You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it but if you say what are we going to eat on the 7th year if we don't sow or gather our crops then I will so order my blessing for you in the 6th year that it will bring forth the crop for 3 years when you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crops come in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. Now notice this. For the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. God was teaching his people through the Sabbath year that the land wasn't theirs. They were stewards. They were stewards of it. The land was God's. The land of Israel is God's land. 
the promised land was God's land. And he gave it to his people, to the descendants of Abraham, to, as stewards to work. And this took great faith to work six years, but then the seventh and eighth year you would not, uh, you would not work it. Well, you'd work on the eighth year to get ready for the ninth year to produce. But that one year you were just eating off the land and trusting that God would provide as much in the sixth year for the years to come. This took great faith. And the sad thing is, his people never did this. All of this was to show that the promised land belonged to God, not to those who lived on it. Um, they believed that they would have to believe that God provided, and He made them stop working to prove it. Even when they rested, God would provide. Think about the land that you live on for a moment the actual physical land that you live on. The dirt beneath your house, it's been there for thousands of years. Uh, the hills that surround your neighborhood, they haven't moved since creation, unless somebody's gotten there with a stick of dynamite. But for the most part, the hills that are there are the hills that got put there, for the most part. And it was yours before it was somebody else's before it was yours, and after you, it's going to be somebody else's. And yet right now, it's yours. You are a steward of the land that God has given you, whether you own it, whether you rent it, or whether you're um, in a bargain with the bank to own it. Somebody owns it, but ultimately, it's God's. And unlike our homes today, though, the promised land was just that. It was given by promise. It was God's covenant to Abraham, and it was an unconditional promise, and it is still in effect. The land of Israel is still the land that God promised to the descendants of Abraham, and it is the land that one day he will not give them just in a political sense like they have now, but he will give them also with a spiritual context. And we'll see, we'll see more of that as, uh, as we get into the text for today. Well, look at the very next chapter now, Leviticus 26, and let's look at what God predicted would happen if they would not obey this rule about the Sabbath year and giving the land its rest. Leviticus 26, look at verse 32. Leviticus 26, 32. This is what's going to happen if they did not obey this command. The Lord says, I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. Okay, well there's the, there's the prediction. Now you also have 2 Chronicles 36 open, so turn there. 2 Chronicles 36, look down at verse 15. This is the fulfillment of what we just read in Leviticus. Of course, You'll remember, as we've talked about the last several times together, Second Chronicles was written to the exiles, to those who had been exiled from the land. And so they are reading basically why this happened 
to them, why they were taken out of the land. Second Chronicles 36, starting in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So the purpose for the exile was not merely God saying, if you disobey me, I'll take you out of the land. But one of the reasons for taking them out of the land was so that the land could have its Sabbaths. You think, why does God care so much about land? Because it's part of his promise to Abraham. And the mention here of Jeremiah, we won't turn there, but you probably have a note in your margin of Jeremiah 29.11 and Jeremiah 25, I'm sorry, 29.10 and Jeremiah 25.11. Both of that, those verses talk about the prediction that it will be a 70-year exile, that Israel will be taken out of the land for 70 years. Why 70 years? Where, well, we're told here why that was because it had to do with the Sabbath years. For 490 years, Israel lived in the land and never obeyed the Sabbath year. And so every seven years, they were to do that, but they didn't. So 490 divided by seven years is 70 years of exile. So for 70 years, the land got the rest that it didn't get when Israel lived there for 490 years. That's why the exile was 70 years long. All right, so look at the very next verse, verse 22. The story turns and gets better. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Cyrus. Cyrus was not a believer. It sort of sounds like he is by reading these words, but Cyrus believed in God, but problem is Cyrus believed in a lot of gods. He was polytheistic, but he did believe that God, our, our Lord, had given him the power and the authority to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. 
And it says that the, that, that the Lord stirred up the, the spirit of Cyrus, that God worked in the heart of this pagan king to bring about benefits for God's people. God does that. That's the way God works. He didn't just do it in the old days. He does it today, which is very encouraging when you think about if you ever get discouraged about who gets elected. God can work through anybody. The Proverbs talk about how the Lord works in the king's heart and channels the king's heart like, like channels of river, river of water. God makes it go wherever he wants it to go. God can use a pagan Cyrus to pay for and build and protect and provide his people going back into the land and to worship the true God of Israel. God can make it happen. Now, look at the very next verse. You say, well, there isn't a next verse. Yes, it is. It's Ezra chapter 1. This all sets us up for Ezra. Ezra 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Sound familiar? Sounds real familiar. We just read it at the end of Second Chronicles. Ezra, as he writes his book, grabs the last few verses of Second Chronicles to, to, as the content to begin his verse, his book to show that this is one long narrative, that the book of Ezra just continues right along where Second Chronicles left off. This is why Israel was taken out of the land, and now here is why Israel is brought back into the land. God stirred up Cyrus, stirred up Cyrus's heart to bring them back in. Now, you have in your handout there a chart. So pull out that chart, if you would. And I love that Lisa sort of gave us the geriatric version of it, nice and large. It's great. Three returns to Jerusalem. Notice these returns. The returns from exile, there are three returns. The first one is recorded in Ezra chapters 1 to 6. It's the return under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Then the second half of the book of Ezra, chapter 7 to 10, is the return under Ezra to rebuild the people. And then the next time we continue our series here in the book, of, we'll look at the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, Nehemiah. Uh, the return under Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. So you have three returns, three leaders, three purposes. The return under Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. The return under Ezra rebuilt the people. The return under Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. And notice the book of Esther neatly fits beneath, between chapter, Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Historically, that's where the book of Esther fits. So you have three returns, three leaders, three purposes. And I didn't write the dates in there, if you are interested in the dates of the return, but the first return 
began about 538 B.C. The second return under Ezra, about 438 B.C., and the third return at 444 B.C. Ezra is who we're looking at. How did he rebuild the people? We're not really going to focus so much on chapters 1 through 6 of Zerubbabel's ministry. We'll kind of talk about that some more when we get to the book of Haggai. Haggai was a contemporary. He was a prophet during this time, and his whole emphasis was rebuild the temple. So we won't focus on that so much here. We'll focus on Ezra rebuilding the people. So turn to Ezra chapter 7, and let's look at that. Because the way that Ezra strengthened the people is the same way that you and I get strengthened in our walk with God. Ezra chapter 7, let's begin at verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Look at verse 8. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra. We're introduced to Ezra as a scribe who is skilled in the law of Moses. A scribe who is skilled in the Bible. Ezra wasn't born skilled in the Bible. Ezra became skilled in the Bible. Interesting way to, to phrase that, isn't it? That he was skilled in the law of Moses. To be skilled in the scriptures. It doesn't just happen. It happened because of Ezra's passion, verse 10. Ezra had set his heart, we're told. Set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it and teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra set his heart to study, to study. The, the verb for set his heart, the phrase there, is from a verb that means to make firm, that he made firm his commitment to, to study. The New American Standard says, set his heart. The New International Version says, he devoted himself. The New Living Translation says, he determined to study. Why did Ezra devote himself this way? Well, one reason Ezra tells us himself as he writes this book. Verse 6, it says that the Lord God of Israel gave the law of Moses. That Ezra determined to study the Bible because he knew it was from God. It was the Word of God. Ezra also refers to it as the law of the Lord. The Bible is the Word of God. Ezra set his heart, first of all, to practice it, or, or to study it, that he, he made it a commitment to actually be in the text, to study the Word of God. And it is a commitment. I love the way that the, these different translations translate it. He set his heart. He devoted himself. He determined. It was a decision. It wasn't just a matter of convenience for Ezra. It was a passion. It was a commitment. 
He didn't come from the womb skilled in the Bible. He grew skilled in the scriptures because he determined to spend time in the Bible. But notice he didn't stop there. He also set his heart to practice it. It wasn't enough to be a hearer of the word for Ezra. He was also a doer of the word. And this is just personal. He personally studied it, and he personally practiced it. It was something that made a difference in his personal life. It wasn't just uh, information. It was transformation in Ezra's life. And then finally, and only finally, only at that point did Ezra teach it. He taught, he taught God's word to the people. But notice that preparing the people, as Ezra is rebuilding the people, Ezra begins by rebuilding himself. He begins on himself. He studies the word personally, he applies the word personally, and then he teaches others. And anybody that teaches the scriptures, that ought to be their challenge. And any of us, as we walk with God, that is our challenge. Even if you're not a Bible teacher, that's still your challenge, is to personally study, to personally apply it, and then in some way to use what God has done in your life in the life of somebody else. God's word the impact that God's word has on us personally is also directly related to the impact that we're going to have on other people. If we don't devote ourselves to the Bible, we're not going to have a clear understanding of the direction that God wants to take us. We're not going to have a clear understanding of his will for our lives. We're left bouncing around. We're left as uh, people just trying to figure it out. We're left with the rationalistic residue of our culture. And that's really what our culture tells us, is that if you want to know the direction of your life, look in your heart. Follow your heart. It's the theme of most Disney movies, isn't it? You know, follow your heart. What happens when you look in your heart and you see a jerk? You don't follow that. Well, the reality is, the Bible tells us things that we wouldn't otherwise know about ourselves. In fact, one of the things it tells us is, is that the heart is deceptive. And you follow your heart, it may trick you into thinking you need to go this way, when in reality, God's word clearly says, no, don't go the way of your heart. Betray what your heart is telling you and go this other direction. But if we don't have the Bible, then we don't know that. We're left to just common sense. And common sense can can fail us. Just ask Eve in the garden. When God's word was taken out of the picture and Eve was left with nothing but common sense and her senses and the temptation of the tempter, then she made a decision that looked good initially, but boy, was it a bad choice. And we have all experienced that as well, haven't we? Ezra teaches us here by example that First, we set our heart to be in the Word personally. Then we set our heart to obey the Word personally. And then we also set our heart to sharing the Word personally with others, somehow. The book of Ephesians sort of shames, or I shouldn't say shames, but um, um, 
what's a good way to say it? Rebukes the reader by saying, by now you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone else to teach you the basics of your faith over and over and over. The reality is that even though we not, may not all be teachers like up front, we're all teachers. We're all dispensers of God's truth to others. Titus 2 very clearly commands older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands. And it's all right there in Titus 2, a whole list of great things that older ladies with great experience in life should be mentoring and discipling younger women. This is what Ezra did. This was his passion, and it was his commitment, and it should be our commitment as well. But you know, Ezra ministered not just in the time of Ezra. We've got the chart, you know, neatly laid out, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. But Ezra also ministered during the time of Nehemiah. So let's look at one of those incidents where Ezra actually taught the word to the people. Flip to the next book, to Nehemiah chapter 8. And we'll borrow a chapter from the next message in our series. Nehemiah chapter 8. When most people think of Jerusalem, they think of the Temple Mount. They think of the newsreels, of the Western Wall, of the Jews praying before the Western Wall, or the, uh, the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount, or maybe the Mount of Olives, or any other of these iconic pictures of Jerusalem. But the reality is, Jerusalem, original Jerusalem, was none of that. Original Jerusalem was just south of the current Temple Mount on a little sliver of land called the City of David. And if you look at it from big, broad pictures, you wouldn't see anything but just a clump of houses. You have to actually go there and see the, the archaeology that's there from the time of the original city. And the original city of David was where it was, the original Jerusalem is where it was, because of really two main geographical things. The first was its location surrounded by valleys on, all, on three sides, made it very easy to protect. Another reason that it was there is because of water. The, the single source of water for Jerusalem for centuries was a spring called the Gihon Spring, and it was right there by the city of David. The problem with the Gihon Spring even though it flowed 24-7, was that it was located not up high where you could build a wall around your city and have water on the inside. It was down in, a, in the valley. That's a terrible place for water because if somebody comes, you, you don't want to build a wall in the valley because you could just crawl up on the hill as an enemy and shoot over the wall. So they had to build their walls around their city, but then they also had to build a wall around their water. And this wall around the water was called the water gate. When you think of water gate, you probably don't think of Jerusalem. <laughs> you probably don't think of anything positive when you think of the water gate. But the biblical water gate in Nehemiah chapter 8 is a very positive thing. One, because it illustrates something, and another, because it's the location of this great event. Let's look at this. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. 
in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra, the scribe, stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Now look it down at verse 5. We'll skip all these names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. I'll pause there because, by the way, do you ever wonder why we always stand up in church? This is it. This is, this is the tradition that we are following. Interesting, we don't do what's coming after this. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. So let's try that next week. Whenever we're told to stand and read the Bible, let's, before we sit down, let's all shout, Amen, Amen, and lift our hands. See what happens. Same context. Settle down. It's okay. It's all right. I'm just kidding. Let's don't really do that. Verse 6, they blessed the Lord, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Okay, that's something else we need to add. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Translating, or you might understand it as explaining, giving, giving a, a clear interpretation of what the word of God meant. Biblical authors wrote not to a reading audience, but to a listening audience. When our, our engagement with the Word of God is primarily reading, though we hear it on Sundays, or if you listen to a, a, a broadcast or, or the radio or some preacher during the week, but typically our engagement with the Bible is reading it. But that's not the way it was for centuries. For centuries, people heard the Word of God, and the Word of God was written to a listening audience. And in the Hebrew language, um, even more so. Listen to uh, what the late David Dorsey wrote in a wonderful book called The Literary Structure of the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. He says, The blandness of an ancient text's appearance reflects the cultural reality that ancient texts were written primarily to be heard, not seen. Signals were geared for the ear, not the eye, since visual markers would be of little value to a listening audience. It's, uh, and, of course, Dorsey's book goes on to talk about some of the wonderful connections. It's a great book to, to get. Uh, again, it's called The Literary Structure of the Old Testament. He basically outlines in, in English the way that the Hebrew text is written so that you can see the connections that the Hebrew is making one verse to the other. And it's stuff that we don't see in our English because English completely loses the idea. But uh, with the Hebrew text, you can see that God wrote it in a way that if you were a hearer, you'd be able to hang different, different phrases on different hooks, and you'd remember it a lot easier than you would simply by reading it. It was written to a listening audience. Uh, you, I've often heard, you want to hear, hear God speak to you, then read the Bible out loud. That's how you hear God speak to you. Just read the Bible out loud or listen to it out loud. When's the last time you listened to the Bible instead of read it? Have you ever just like got a, a CD of the Bible or 
used that wonderful app called YouVersion and just listen to the Bible. There's so many great apps that allow you to just listen to the Word of God. It's a wonderful way to engage with the Scripture, is to listen to it. Tell you, a, a, a wonderful way for you to enjoy the book of Job is to listen to it. You know all those boring chapters where they have all these conversations back and forth between Job and his friends? It comes alive when you listen to Max McLean re read the New International Version of the book of Job. That's my favorite way to, to engage with Job is through that. The Bible tells us, for example, listen to this verse from Deuteronomy 31, verse 10 and 11. Just listen. At the end of every seven years, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Colossians 4.16 says this, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul writes, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Scripture was initially meant to be heard. It doesn't mean we shouldn't read it, but it, it would be wonderful to add reading, to add hearing to our reading, because that's how it was originally intended. So it's no surprise why the people asked Ezra, requested that Ezra read them the scripture that day at the water gate. Ezra had whetted their appetite, as it were, for years. Ezra personally studied it, personally applied it, personally taught it, and then now when it comes time to rebuild the wall in the time of Nehemiah, Ezra is requested to get up and to expound the word of God for the people. They were prepared for years for this opportunity to hear and to be challenged to rebuild the wall and to not grow weary in their devotion to it. Our regular study and obedience to the scripture will prepare us for the opportunities that God provides. So the lesson from our time today is pretty simple, and I hope that it's already obvious and you could probably already tell me what it is without me telling you, but I'll tell you. Determine to study God's Word in your personal life. Determine to apply God's Word in your personal life. Determine to share God's Word in your personal life. If we try to squeeze it in and make our personal time with God just fit into our day, that doesn't always work because there's so much else screaming for our attention. And at least for me personally, for me personally, I have to schedule it. In fact, I have to make it first thing. Because if it doesn't, believe me, I've got a lot to do throughout the day. And my time in the Bible would be very, very short if it were not part of my, my schedule. You may find the same is true for you. And if you're finding that being in the Bible on a regular basis is a challenge, schedule it. Make it an appointment. Put it on your calendar with a time to where if somebody calls you up and says, hey, you want to do this and that? And you say, oh, I'm, I'm already booked at that time. You don't have to tell them you're reading your Bible and sound all spiritual. Just say, I already have an appointment. And if you have that in your mind or if you have it on your, your phone to give you a notice to, to remind you of some, of some kind, to make the Bible a priority in your life because as it is, it becomes the guiding source of the Scriptures.
Um, you're probably wondering why I've got this stack of Bibles here. Well, these are my Bibles, basically all my life. And this is the first one. Have you seen this cute little guy before? This is the very first Bible I ever got. It's fairly falling apart, not because I've read it, but because it's just so old. And it's King James. And for years, this is the only Bible I had as a boy. And it was really just part of my Sunday attire. I had my coat, I had my tie, and I had this Bible. And I would take it to church, and I'd try to follow along with the King James and really struggled with it, and also struggled with the, the pictures. Because, you know, as a kid, you love the pictures, but I always wondered why the Ten Commandments were in the book of Job. <laughs> and, you know, other, other odd things like that. But then I came to understand that's the way publishers work. You can, for every certain number of books, then you can have an, a, a color page. And so they just, they put them as close as they could and figured, well, I hope the kids will figure this out, that the ark wasn't in the book of Numbers as it is here. So this is my first Bible, and honestly, I didn't get much from this, but uh, I've hung on to it just as a nostalgic piece. When I got to college and I got to a church up in Denton that actually was committed to the Word of God and to doing what Ezra said, to challenging us to be personally in the Word and personally applying it and personally studying it, then I got this, this Bible, the Thompson Chain Reference. I really enjoyed it. This is the New International Version and spent quite a bit of time in it. But then once I got involved with Dallas Seminary, of course, you had to get the Ryrie. And so I got the Ryrie NIV, and this became the book that I studied for a long time and really enjoyed it. But then I began to learn the biblical languages, and as I began to learn the biblical languages, I uh, made the conversion, you might say, to the New American Standard. I've got a cover on this, but this is the Inductive Study Bible, and this was my Bible for a long time. And I spent a lot of time in this book, and it's got a lot of markings in it. And the reason I'm showing all this to you is because primarily of this Bible. Because this Bible, I, it got to the point as I would read through the Bible and read through the Bible and read through the Bible that I would see all the notes that I'd written. And I, and I would think, yep, yep, got that. Got that. Look at all those notes. Man, I nailed it on that. Yep, done. And I thought, you know what? I need a new Bible. And I'm not saying that you need a new Bible if you've got lots of notes in it. But for me, when I couldn't approach it new because there was so much that I'd already, I'd already been in it so much because of all my notes. So I got another Bible that I'm starting to mark up, and I'm sure one day I'll probably have to move on from it. But whatever it takes for you to approach the Bible in a fresh way, whether it's through listening, whether it's getting a brand new Bible or a brand new version of the Bible that's going to challenge you to listen to it in a new way, whatever it takes to be in the Word on a regular basis. I've got one more book here to show you. This is not a Bible. It's called The Historical Geography of the Holy Land. It sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? It's by George Adam Smith, and this edition, if you can sort of see the spine of it, looks really old because it is. It's like from 1897, I think. It's like one of the original editions. It's a great book to learn about the geography of the Bible. This is back before they had pictures. Uh, they put pictures in books, and so uh, his description, Smith's description of the Holy Land is rich. He's a great writer. He knows the Hebrew and he was, his descriptions are very rich. But I share this with you because 
As I was reading along, and there are still some pages like this, I'm glad because it's a great example, the publisher in London, sorry, in London didn't finish cutting it all. See? Look at that. There are pages and pages like that throughout this book. And so whenever I pull it out and I'm researching a particular site or topic and I get to one of these, I have to read this book with a pair of scissors. And, I'll, and I very carefully cut until one day I realized this book is more than 100 years old. I am the first person to read these pages. This has been in some library or wherever until I got it. I am the first person to read these pages. No one has ever read these pages. If they did, they would have cut it to, to be able to read it. And so I know a book more than 100 years old, I'm the only one that has read these pages. Here's the point. I, I read that and thought, oh, that's kind of neat, until I thought, would I notice if there were parts of my Bible that were like that? Would I even know it? Well, there probably aren't. But it's a great question to ask ourselves. Paul wrote all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. That's why God's given us his word. And the word will show you truth about yourself that you may never have realized. The word, in fact, can be as honest as a child. One time, my, uh, I was over at my grandmother's. In fact, we were all over there. And our daughter, Sarah, was a young child at the time, back when, back when it was very easy to be honest. You know, children don't know to be discretionary with what they say. And I was doing some coloring with Sarah. We were coloring and drawing a, a landscape, and there's a house, and there's the sun, and I was coloring it all in. And I showed it to, to Sarah, thinking that she would say, oh, that's great, Daddy. She looked at it, and she said, Dad, the sun's not supposed to be red. It's supposed to be yellow, like your teeth. The Bible does that. And it's good that the Bible does that. Because otherwise, we'd be walking around with yellow teeth. We would not know the blind spots in our lives. We are not as self-aware as we think we are. We need the truth of God's Word to show us the truth of ourselves, not just so that we can be aware of it, but like Ezra, we can be aware of it and we can apply it. And then we can go help others apply it as well. Let's pray. Our Father, how many times have we been in this room with the great privilege of the Bible in our laps, the Bible being read and taught, of your Spirit moving among us, convicting us, encouraging us, challenging us? Every time it's a privilege because your Word is that privilege. As Ezra had in his heart to study the law of the Lord 
and to practice it and to teach its principles in Israel. As he did that day at the water gate, the place where the source of nourishment was walled off and guarded, would you help us to do that with our time in the Bible? Just like, just like Ezra at the water gate, that we would wall off that time, that we would guard the source of our nourishment, that which gushes from your word, the living water of the Spirit of God and the wisdom that we get from the scriptures. May we wall it off just as we were protecting a source of water. May we guard it and protect that time. And as we're in it, would you give us the blessing of focus? Give us the courage to see the reality of who we really are, to allow your word to have its way with us, to change us, and by your grace to have the influence and the privilege of changing other lives through the scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.